Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today, I'm speaking with Virginia Pye, the author of Dreams of the Red Phoenix. Today's interview marks a turning point for New Books in Historical Fiction. For the first time, we've been on the air long enough to have an author return for a second interview. I spoke to Virginia first in September 2013 about her lovely debut novel, River of Dust. I'm delighted to welcome her back to discuss her second book, also set in China, 27 years later than her first. The new novel, too, explores the life of a missionary community in northern China, now under the dramatic and dangerous conditions of the Japanese occupation and the Chinese Civil War. For that reason, today's interview will follow a slightly different format from usual, with less discussion of how the author became a writer. If you'd like to hear the earlier interview, where we cover that topic in some depth, you can find it by going to http colon slash slash newbooksinhistoricalfiction.com, clicking on the tab that says List of Interviews, then scrolling down until you see Virginia Pie, River of Dust, Unbridled Books 2013. But I will start by reading the opening of the novel, as I always do. 1. At dusk, the pigeons came home to roost in a flurry of white wings and damp air. The rains had finally stopped, and Charles and Han waited on top of the wall to reward them with seeds from their palms. After the birds landed and strutted about, the boys gripped their trembling bodies and stuffed them into the coop. You are right, Charles said. They came back. Out beyond the upturned tile roofs of the town stretched fields of millet and hemp that had never produced a bountiful harvest. The pear and apricot orchards begrudgingly offered up shriveled fruit each summer, and further in all directions stretched rocky ground that to the west ended in forbidding mountains. In winter, wind swept across the plains, carrying dust from the Gobi Desert. The ground stayed hard and crusted with snow for months, cracking into fissures that healed only with the spring rains. But on this day, the arid earth glowed as new leaves softened the landscape. This brief, bright, promising moment in June wouldn't last long. Soon the sun would beat down and turn the fields brown, the trees limp. Rain might return in autumn, although the farmers knew not to count on it. This part of North China remained dry and desolate for much of the year. Nothing like the lush visions Charles carried in his mind of America, where he had seen fields of tasseled corn so green it hurt his eyes. And now, please join me in welcoming Virginia Pye. Hi, Virginia. Hi, Carolyn. Nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. Uh, When we ended our last conversation, you had just turned in a manuscript for a contemporary novel set in Richmond, Virginia in 2011. So I was delighted, but somewhat surprised to learn about Dreams of the Red Phoenix. What happened? Well, um, I did work on that novel, and it's in good shape and may find a home uh, before too long um, or eventually. But um, what ended up happening was I told an anecdote, um, just sort of in passing, to my editor that was about my grandmother in China in uh, in the 1930s, and um, it, it's a it's a lovely incident, or not lovely, but it's a it's sort of an, a, a lovely in terms of sparking the imagination. Um, as a family story goes, she at one evening chased Japanese soldiers off her front porch with a broom. And I don't have a whole lot of detail beyond that, but I'd always heard about it, and it always gave me a sense of her character. And uh, when I shared this anecdote with my editor, he said, you should write a novel about that. And, you know, when anybody else says that to you, you don't necessarily pay that much attention. But when your editor says that, 
you have to listen carefully because that means he has something in mind and uh, that prompted me to have something in mind. And so I started to do some research into the time period when my grandmother lived there and started to imagine a female character who would do something like that, be brave and kind of brash and, uh, and you know, what is her story to chase Japanese soldiers off her porch with a broom? So this is, when we were talking about River of Dust, you had mentioned that that was part of a, a much longer novel, not, not River of Dust itself, but it grew out of a much longer novel about Chinese missionaries. So this was not another part of that novel then, this came up independently? Yeah, this is completely independent, written entirely since uh, finishing River of Dust. Um, it uh, sort of had a very strong plot in my mind that evolved fairly quickly, and um, I had a pretty clear sense of what I wanted to do with this book. Um, it takes place only over a few weeks, and uh, um, you know, is is all is all new, not not something that I'd written previously. So tell us more about Shirley Carson, who is the central character of the novel. You say she's based on um, your uh, grandmother. Um, she's very different in personality from Grace in River of Dust. Um, right. Did, so give us a sense of her as a character, how she resembles and differs from Grace and maybe your grandmother, uh, if you know much about her, and how you developed her as a person. Well, um I was interested, as I said, you know, based on that anecdote in a, a woman who um, could be in that sort of foreign, um, rural, desolate setting and have that kind of almost routine bravery. And um, so uh, I wanted a character that, unlike Grace, who was uh, the main character in River of Dust, um, would not be an ingenue, would not be somebody who would start out in sort of a weak way, um, second, feeling herself sort of second uh, to her husband uh, or, in her, or in her husband's shadow. Um, I was more interested with this book in writing the story of a mature woman who knows her own mind and who um, is, uh, you know, confident uh, to the point of being cocky and uh that that evolved as I got to know Shirley. Um, her the, the the less good side of her personalities evolved as she faced greater and greater dangers. But just to begin with, I wanted somebody who, like my grandmother, would um, be able to stand up to uh, difficulty. And uh, the story of my grandmother, um, I only knew her till I was age six. Um, my grandfather had passed away when my own father was five, so I certainly never knew him at all. But my grandmother <clears throat> uh, lived on um, until into the 1960s and um, lived with us, actually, when I was growing up. And uh, we had a sweet relationship. She was a pretty um, stern person, um, but we had a, a, a nice rapport, she and I. And we had tea parties um, when I was little. Um, but what I always gathered uh, w with her Chinese porcelain, I should say, she was very generous with sharing her antiques with me. Um, but but what I the impression I got from my family was that she was always pretty tough in certain ways. And um, she had decided uh, she had been in China, had uh, met her husband there in the mission in uh, western part of China in Shaanxi province. And um, she, uh, after her husband died, I think the assumption probably would have been that she would return to the United States 
with her young son, her five-year-old son. She had also, my grandmother also lost uh, a daughter only a year before she lost her husband. Um, so it's hard for me to even fathom that level of loss that she uh, dealt with and uh, in that foreign setting. So you would think she would sort of hurry home to her family and uh, in Ohio. But instead, what she chose to do was to stay in China and she raised my father there. Um, in large part under Japanese occupation. And then my dad left to go to college in the United States, and my grandmother still stayed on. And she was really determined to stay in China, and it wasn't until after Pearl Harbor that she was finally forced to leave. Um, her commitment was really great to the Chinese, and she loved being there, obviously. And, uh, you know, all of the turmoil that was taking place around her, um, which I learned more about in my research, you know, she just wanted to stay and uh, felt confident to be able to handle it. So that interested me as a starting off point for a female character. Um, and so uh, Shirley has a pretty big contrast to Grace, who didn't have any of that confidence um, until as River of Dust, you know, evolves uh, near the end of the book, where she gains that eventually. That's a really extraordinary story for your grandmother. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the 30s, um, the ex expectations of women were very different then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, yeah. So tell us about Shirley herself. How does she end up in northwest uh, China? Well, um, Shirley is um, uh, <laughs> full of contradictions in a funny way. She, she uh, was raised by a well-off family in Ohio, in Cleveland, outside of Cleveland, and um, she sort of uh, stumbles into this relationship with her husband, who she's clearly crazy about, um, but he's a very different type of person than her. He's a minister, um, very good-hearted, and um, very clear in his sort of sense of mission and, and duty there in China, um, and very engaged with the Chinese. Um, Shirley, on the other hand, is not as religious a person. She's not, she doesn't really even think of herself as a missionary, particularly, but she's married this minister. And unfortunately, at the, you know, before the start of the book, he has uh, had a, a, a disastrous, a tragedy has befallen him. And uh, as far as Shirley knows, he has um, gone down in a mudslide out on the trail visiting uh, his parishioners way out in the countryside. And so as the book starts, she's in mourning and um, and so she uh, you know I, I got to start with this strong woman in mourning uh, not particularly committed to the cause of being there and so this book starts with her assuming she's going to leave China as soon as possible and uh, get back to civilization and uh, you know deal with her loss there um, but things evolve, and um, I guess you'll probably ask me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. <laughs> so when we first meet her, she has, uh, as you say, she's in mourning for her husband. Um, she also has a teenage son named Charles. Uh, tell yes. us about Charles. Well, Charles is a 1930s, uh, you know, 15-year-old American boy um, who has been uh, raised in part um, far, far from America and misses everything American. Um, he's so proud of his kids' sneakers and wants to be an American boy and yet is stuck way out in rural China. And um, he does, 
so he's he's sort of longing for America. That starts in the very beginning of the book. He's already wishing he was going back. Um, and uh, and the other thing about him that I think is fairly typical of of many of the Americans there at that time and other foreigners was that he had a certain sense of superiority or um, arrogance about his place there in that culture. Um, he could stay sort of separate from the Chinese, uh, stay in the mission compound as much as he wanted to, and um, had a, a, a sort of a sense of entitlement that came with that position. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as the story progresses and the scene there becomes more dangerous and fraught, um, Charles has to face that he's really not protected from dangers and he's really not um, in a better position than anybody else to deal with the the chaos around him. So um, there's a lot of coming of age of of, of Charles, um, but, you know, he's pretty much a fun-loving guy, uh, at least, uh, you know, at the start. And very American as much. He's probably more American than many American kids because he's trying so hard to make up for the fact that he's all the way in China. So he is very American, although I was also impressed by how comfortable he is with Chinese culture, Chinese language and so on, because he's basically grown up there. I mean, he has friends who are Chinese. He's, yeah. He yeah. knows the, um, you know, the correct way to address an elder and all of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, and I think that the friendships that he has, that's the advantage of being a younger person there, that he had those those friendships, um, and they taught him a great deal, and he, he gained some humility through that, um, through those relationships. Um, you know, his mother was more sheltered and um, didn't really have a position there, and um, it wasn't really in her nature to sort of venture out, so she remains sort of thinking of the Chinese in the abstract um, at the start of the book. And it's only because of circumstances that she starts to really um, engage with them and begin to understand them. So, um, you know, she, she learns something uh, that that helps her to not be an outsider also um, as the book goes on. So there's one other uh, relatively major character, I mean, not a primary character, but certainly an important secondary character who shows up right at the very beginning of the book. And that is Shirley's uh, friend, Catherine, who seems to be her main uh, human connection, really, inside this missionary complex. Tell us a bit about her, because she's quite different in character, too, although she's definitely not uh, an ingenue either. Right, right. She's younger than Shirley, um, and she, like Shirley, though, is there as a missionary, um, not for the purest of reasons. In other words, not just for religious or, uh, you know, to fulfill her sense of of, uh, faith. Um, She's there partly to get away from, you know, a bad uh, bad breakup and uh, assert her independence, which... I did a little, you know, some research into all of this because the first book, River of Dust, was set in 1910 and was about American missionaries there. And as far as I can tell, they had a very clear sense of trying to bring Christianity to the Chinese, um, really as zealots, you know, really believing that Christianity was the thing that the Chinese needed to um, improve their culture and their character as well, you know, um, as respectful as, as, you know, many of the Americans seem to be, um, there's sort of this uh, judgment implied in what they're doing. I think by the 1930s, it was more of a, a sense of an exchange of cultures. And while it's still a religious-based mission, um, 
I, I think that there's people could be there for other reasons as well. And uh, it wasn't that as uncommon for Americans to go there. You know, it's not quite like junior year abroad. <laughs> it's a greater commitment than that. But it is sort of to broaden the horizons of the Americans and, um, you know, to bring American culture there and to learn something from the Chinese. And anyway, not strictly religious, I guess I should say. Um, and so Catherine sort of fits into that category. And uh, um, so when things start to get more dangerous and uh, the Japanese attack um, at the start of the book, you know, Catherine is going to be one of the first people to say, whoa, this is more than I bargained for. And, um, you know, she's she is not interested in staying there to save souls if it means risking her own life. Um, but she's a good friend to Shirley. Uh, she's still, uh, you know, a young younger woman, but uh, but very smart and and uh, and clever and, uh, you know, tries to steer help steer Shirley in the right direction. So that is a little bit about Catherine. And could you also tell us a little bit about Shirley's husband? I understand, or maybe I made this up, but I had the impression that he was a nephew, perhaps, of the Reverend from River of Dust, or at least some uh-huh. kind of family connection. And yeah, um, although is. he's not present in the book in the same way that some of the others are because of this tragedy, he um, he he continues to exert an influence over Shirley and his family. Yes. I, I think that he's really the moral voice of the book, um, and he, um, it, it, um, let's see, he's a uh, he's a minister, and he, um, but he right from the start says that he's not a minister of words, but minister of the trail, meaning he's out there meeting the Chinese, learning from them, um, engaging, having relationships and friendships. Um, he wishes in a way that he was more erudite and was uh, a better speaker and more inspiring in certain ways. But as we get to know him and see how others speak of him, you get a sense that people really respect him greatly. Um, And he is the nephew of the Reverend Wesley Watson, who was the larger-than-life figure from River of Dust. And um, Watson was uh, Caleb Carson's uh, mother's brother. And I think it's not uncommon that these families, um, you know, did send more than one generation to do this sort of mission work. Um, It sort of became something that was an alternative uh, to, you know, other other forms of family business (laughs) in those eras. Um, So uh, it seemed like there could be a connection there. and uh, so I think it's clear that Caleb's very good-hearted. He's also um, tries, uh, as Shirley remembers him, he, he tries to keep her on track and keep her from be, being too arrogant in relation to the Chinese. Um, and, uh, you know, Caleb just has a very big heart and a, a sort of a, a deeper mind and understanding of, of the Chinese. So, um He's, you know, I, I think in a way he is the, the heart of the book, um, even even if he's not a very main character. Yes, I had that impression, too, that he was the heart of the book, really. Um, he's kind of what the rest of them are all aiming to be, but they never, because they have different personalities and different interests, they never quite get there. Right. 
Um, I actually liked it that he was related because otherwise it's kind of mm-hmm. coincidental that you would have these two. I don't know if it's really the same community or if it's just in a similar part of the world, but it's mm-hmm. you get the you know it gives a reason why they're why you're revisiting this missionary community in Northwest China, yeah. which I thought was really kind of cool. Yeah, um, it's a, well, I just have to say it's, it was an interesting thing to discover that I could write a follow-up book to River of Dust. Um, it couldn't come directly out of River of Dust because of the way River of Dust ends. Um, but and, and I certainly didn't write River of Dust with the intention of writing a follow-up. Um, I, I think it would have had to have a very different ending. But um, I did I did feel comfortable setting another book in that same setting and uh, and learning a little bit about how that, you know, that part of the country would have changed. Um, and maybe in certain ways that it hardly had changed at all. You know, the mission compound still is an isolated, um, you know, setting in uh, adjacent to a small town in the countryside. Um, so anyway, I, I was glad to be able to sort of concoct a way to to do another uh, another chapter in American missionaries over there. So, yeah. uh, Yes, yes, I like that a lot. Um, so Shirley's already got a lot on her plate, right? She's, she's a new single mom, in effect, whether she likes it or not, um, of this teenage boy, and um, she's in mourning for her husband, and she's in this isolated community. The Japanese are already there. Um, but in a sense, her troubles are just beginning because it's the beginning of the novel. So almost immediately, uh, we get the global context of the situation that Shirley and Charles are in uh, when he provokes the Japanese, uh, which leads up to the scene that you mentioned with your grandmother sweeping the Japanese off the porch. So tell us how, why he's doing that and how that happens. Um, well. Um... Let's see. Okay, so he um, he he has that sort of cocky personality and uh, feels a little bit um, above the the Japanese or just un- untouchable untouchable by the Japanese. And um, and so there there actually was a story uh, that my father always shared of with a dear childhood friend. Um, them doing different things to provoke the Japanese soldiers who were around during Japanese occupation. And, you know, it seems horrifying to us then knowing later, you know, how the Japanese behaved during World War II, uh, especially in China. Um, but, um, you know, these, these kids could feel invincible at that time. And uh, so I, I sort of stole that attitude in a way right out of a story from my father that he had passed down. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it gives a sense of how the Americans could feel both like, uh, you know, part of the scene there in China and then also definitely protected from it and, and outside of it. So, uh, yeah. Yes, they are protected, as you say. I mean, first of all, this is 1937. So although the Japanese are occupying China, especially North China, they are not at war with the United States. World War II hasn't no. begun yet. Um, right. And talk a little bit about the situation of the Chinese under this occupation, because that's what really leads to the, the that's what really kicks the story off. It's- that's right. Yeah. Well, this is what I, I enjoy doing some research on and trying to understand it a little better. It it was a, a really fraught time there, particularly in this part of North China. And uh, and that's because um, there were four sort of factions 
vying for power at that time there, um, the na- Chinese nationalists um, who were technically in power, um, the Chinese communists who had their, their um, you know, one of their main sort of centers uh, to the north and west of, of where this story takes place. Um, that's where the Red Army was, was camped, sort of at the end of the Long March. They, they ended up in the hills uh, west of Shaanxi province. And so they were around and they were practicing guerrilla tactics against both the nationalists and then the third faction uh, were the Japanese. And so the, the communists were also, uh, you know, trying to make a dent in the Japanese uh, hold on things. And then the fourth faction would have been the warlords who had formerly been in power for a long time and now were assigned to be um, a, a number of them um, uh, officers in the Nationalist Army. And so while they were wearing the Nationalist uniform, they also were sort of vying for any opportunity to step forward and reestablish their individual power. So it was kind of a crazy time there. And um, while the Japanese had been occupying the country for five years prior to the start of this book, um, right in the at the, the start of the summer, July 7th, uh, there was an incident outside of, of Peking, um, which was the Marco Polo Bridge incident, and that was when actual shots were fired between the Chinese and the Japanese, and it was officially the start of the uh, Second uh, Sino-Japanese uh, War, which you know really was the start of World War II between between the Chinese and the Japanese, and. You know, in my research, I, I learned that um, 90% of all the casualties of the Pacific War, um, uh, you know, took place in China. So it was the loss of Chinese life was, was huge. Um, it's the, you know, this, this war was the largest Asian war of the 20th century, and the Chinese suffered uh, unbelievably. Their, their losses were huge. And... Um, so it all started right around that time of July 7th, and um, I had read stories actually written. There's a, a, a memoir um, by a, a dear old friend of my father's about his experience in um, right near where that Marco Polo incident took place and um, how in, in the American compound near there, uh, Chinese flooded the compound right after the incident took place because they suddenly understood that the Japanese were, were you know, they were going to be at war with them and they, the peasants could be uh, their victims, of course. Um, and even the soldiers came flooding in as well to the mission compound. And um, so uh, by all records, it seems like, you know, normally they, there wouldn't be even that many Chinese in the mission compounds, but suddenly there were thousands. And, um, this created in my mind just such a strong picture of, of you know, uh, this sort of disaster <laughs> that was starting to happen um, and how these Americans who were, you know, religious people and in my book, they're, they're, a number of them are very bookish people, people who are put down there in China, but um, because of their faith um, and not necessarily because they're skilled as soldiers or anything else, of course. So um, how would they deal with that? Suddenly having an influx of thousands and thousands of Chinese literally into their front yard. Um, And so that's where the book takes off. And, uh, you know, Shirley has to come forward and admit that she is a trained nurse. 
and she practiced for a little while before her marriage as a nurse, um, but then set it aside and, you know, preferred to sort of uh, read and do other things, um, take care of her son, um, and sort of stay out of the fray of life. But now suddenly, with this influx of Chinese into the mission compound, she really has to come forward. Um, and so we get to see a whole different side of her start to evolve because of that. So that tells you about Shirley. But meanwhile, as you asked about the Chinese, you know, peasants and population, um, it was pretty, you know, chaotic. And, and the way they had dealt with Japanese occupation, my understanding is, is that they had sort of just tried to keep their heads down and go to market and plow your field and, uh, you know, not provoke um, any incidents. Um, but suddenly, um, you know, people were having to, to flood out of their homes or there was a huge increase in the um, number of, of uh, younger, uh, both men and women who joined the Red Army all through the countryside because suddenly there was this understanding that they had to fight and also um, they would be fed. Um, so... Um, Anyway, it it, uh, it it was the start of what was going to turn out to be an incredibly uh, horrific, you know, chapter in Chinese history. And for Shirley personally, it's a kind of turning point, even though it's early in the book. I mean, when we first meet her, she has been essentially emotionally flattened by this experience of losing her husband, and she's barely gotten up you know, she's been lying around. And, and so this is, this galvanizes her in a way. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. And, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's even sort of convinced herself that she just doesn't like the company of people and that she, you know, really is, you know, should have just been a, a bookish sort of person and, and, uh, you know, should just stay out of society essentially. And, Suddenly, when she sees these injured and wounded and hungry Chinese, um, she has to step forward and offer her services. And she's not she's not a particularly gracious person. She's not great at doing that. And so interestingly enough, she realizes that she really shouldn't have been a nurse ever because she doesn't really have that sort of comforting uh, quality in, in her character. Um, so but she can offer her. Uh, talents or skills, I should say, um, you know, to, to do uh, what doctors would do. So she starts to, uh, you know, extract bullets from, from you know, people's limbs. And, and uh, you know, she actually starts to set up a, a, a clinic in her home where um, she can, you know, offer uh, what she knows as a, as a nurse. So it does start to change her. And this also brings her into um, a kind of personal contact with the Chinese Civil War. So talk about that element of it, and particularly what draws her to the communist side, which I think for Americans is probably a very interesting element mm -hmm. of the whole story. Yes, I. I uh, this is sort of where I, I did have a, a, an overarching theme, I, I guess you could say, that I wanted to see played out through the characters and, and, uh, you know, I hope it comes through organically. Um, but you know, the thought was a little bit about Western, um, individualism versus Chinese communalism. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't write a book based on, uh, you know, 
political philosophies or something like that. Um, you t- do it through storytelling. But it, 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 in my story, I hope that it, it comes out that basically Shirley is has been sort of trained to be just thinking about herself and her life and uh, what she, um, uh, you know, not really about others particularly, which is which is odd for somebody living in a mission compound, but. But it is true of her in particular that that she had a certain, um, uh, you know, her her wealth that she grew up with sort of shielded her from really being very involved with others or very concerned about them. Um, and then suddenly she gets thrown into this situation where these wounded and, um, you know, damaged, or, you know, or badly uh, disrupted Chinese come into her home. And she does start to help, and literally the physical activity of of just being overrun with um, tasks that she needs to do and ways to help keeps her busy and literally keeps her head out of her own thoughts briefly. And then she also meets a very interesting um, and charismatic uh, Chinese communist leader who comes in, and he very sort of quietly and... and uh, um, doesn't try to inculcate her into communism, but does start to share with her some of the thinking behind it. And she really latches on to it because she can see that, um, you know, in the 1930s in China, the the, the population was so destitute and, um, you know, uh, the starvation was, was had been high for so long and really were struggling. And the communists right there at the beginning really had um, high goals and very admirable goals of trying to help the peasantry and wanted to um, teach literacy and, in fact, did to all to their soldiers. And um, so, in a way, they were very high-minded, and that's something that appeals to Shirley um, and also very practical, which is the side of her that has not been used in the past, but now suddenly is being used. And so, um, and this is this is based, you know, what her, Shirley's transformation there is based also on the research I did about Americans um, uh, who were in China at that time, um, including uh, a, an old family friend of ours, Harold Isaacs, who was like a grandfather to me growing up, and. I hadn't realized, you know, is this, uh, I knew him in, he must have been in his 60s when I knew him and later. And he, um, but he was there in the 1930s um, in China and was co-editor of uh, an English language pro-Chinese journal that he co-edited with Agnes Smedley. And a bunch of my research for this book um, is based on Ag- Agnes Smedley's uh, story there in China. And um uh, she was an American, uh, also a journalist, and really, really a strong proponent of the communists. And she stayed faithful to their cause long after other Americans and uh, and other foreigners had abandoned them because abandoned the, the communists because um, you know their tactics had become uh, you know uh, damaging to their own people. Um, but I was really interested in Agnes Smedley because she uh, just really fell for the communists and went out to the Red Army camp and really spoke so highly of them and, and felt that she had um, sort of the, the, the just really idealized them and um, 
their 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 ideals spoke to her in some very visceral way um, about you know how they really had greater humanity than than other you know types of of cultures. So um, and uh, so I I really enjoyed reading about her and some of what Shirley experiences is. Uh, you know, I don't want to say it's based on Agnes Medley, but it's it's it was sparked by Agnes Medley's experience. Um, how much she loved being in the Red Army camps, which is really hard to imagine. American woman in pretty much an all male, rural, very rugged um, you know camp, but um, but she was there and um, uh, had you know extraordinary experiences. So. Anyway, that's so. In other words, there's a certain strain of American intellectuals who were in China at that time, who really um, were advocates for the communists. And while Shirley is not that exactly, I uh, took some of that um, as as background for for the transformation that she goes through. And of course, uh, the opposition is not quite what we're thinking either. I mean, the, the people who are opposed to the Chinese communists in this part of North China are individual warlords who are operating very corrupt regimes, sort of like what you see now in isolated parts of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That that old system was in place. Um, you know, and I'm really not an expert on Chinese history, but but there was a uh, there's a my understanding is that there is a way that that you know Mao's approach um, of reaching the the communist peasantry at that time you know really was well timed, and that the nationalists uh, I mean literally I was reading things you know that they um, neglected to pay their soldiers you know that they uh, didn't pay their officers you know mis- things you could call them management mistakes on the part of the the nationalists that they just weren't thinking the same way as the communists and um, and so you can see the the hearts and minds of the communists I mean of the Chinese people shifting towards the towards the communists and uh, at, at one point right at the start of the book actually there's mention of um, the the communists party would put on plays and they would offer big meals and um you know just offering a big meal is right there is enough to convince somebody to to come over to your side so and meanwhile the nationalists they were appealing more to foreign forces they had the americans behind them and they um enlisted former warlords to um to, to be, you know, part of, to be their officers. And so that was a mistake too, in the sense that they were, many of them very corrupt and, you know, the people who lived in their provinces were, you know, trying to get out from underneath their thumb. So um, anyway, I just think it's just a fascinating time and you can sort of see how, how things could play out in the way that they did um, based on some of these, you know, decisions made higher up. So so one of the things that happens as we, as the communists and your, especially your charismatic general Shu, um, becomes part of the story, is that we start to get a sense, and I'm phrasing this very carefully because I don't want to give away a major plot point unless you want mm-hmm. to mention it, but there is a point in the story where the reader understands that what Shirley has been told about what her husband's accident is not exactly the truth, and that there are people who do know the truth, who one might think would share it with her and are not. And so my question is, 
uh, not what happened, because you may not want to share that, but what does it, were you trying to make a point about Shirley um, and her, the extent of her knowledge or understanding of the world around her? I, I definitely was. Um, and, and I think it's, it comes from a broader thought, um, you know, which is something that I played with in River of Dust very clearly. Um, and that was that, uh, you know, that foreigners, um, as much as they may want to, uh, you know, feel that they understand and are a part of another culture, that there's just enormous uh, pitfalls that you can you can fall into, um, uh, you know, and uh, the potential for hubris <laughs> is great in the sense that, you know, Americans can think we understand certain situations or you could say um, more privileged people can think they understand uh, the, 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 the challenges of, of the less, uh, you know, less privileged, um, you know, and, and that, um, it, you know, Shirley throws herself in with the communists and she tries all of this and, um, and yet she still is blind to the full story. Um, she doesn't get it. She doesn't get the whole picture. She doesn't even really get her role in it is, is really the problem. And, um, it, it takes a great deal of humility to be able to see that, I think. And it, it, that seems to be a little bit more what her husband was able to achieve. Um, but it is the same kind of question that came up in River of Dust, which is, you know, how can these Americans ever feel that they belong here or that they understand what's going on around them or that they, um, you know, really are doing good here, um, even though they can convince themselves that they are. Um, so I'm, I'm playing with those same kinds of questions, um, about, um, I mean, you can say it's about imperialism or about, um, privilege or, um, you know, just cultural understanding and, uh, the gaps that, that always exists. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, it got played out in this book in a, in a very particular clear way, uh, which I'm not going to give away, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it has to do with, uh, with that kind of blindness that, that, uh, that we can carry. Unfortunately, good hearted people, um, you know, who, who don't see the whole, whole picture. So. That's great. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple more general questions now, but you mentioned sure. that you have a passage that you would like to read. So I think this would probably be a good time to do that. Okay, um, hang on here. Let's see. Um, sure, I thought that this might be a good one because it sort of sets up uh, the the start of the book. Um, this is near the beginning of the book, um, and uh, surely uh, the, the Chinese have come flooding in to the mission compound. They're in her home. Um, they many of them are injured, and um, you know some have bullet wounds, and clearly they're hungry. And surely someone uh, has, you know, has husband has died not too long before, and we've got, got a clear sense now of what her character is like. And here she is in a conversation with the reverend who is the head of the mission compound, and um, he is trying hard to figure out what to do about this sudden situation that they're in with the, um, with the Chinese all around them. A headache had bloomed over Shirley's right eye. Normally, at this time of day, she would be curled up in her bed, either crying about her lost husband or, before his death, reading. 
endlessly engaging with people, which she had done since first thing this morning, struck her as unrelenting torture. Clearly, Reverend Wells knew the feeling. I realize I've been holed up for weeks, she said, ever since Warren came of my husband's death, my husband's death, and before that I kept to myself perhaps more than I should have. I'm sure you've noticed that I have never been an active community member. I'm simply not a joiner, Reverend. I don't enjoy communication. I know that's criminal, especially for a minister's wife, but you of all people can understand that I prefer the company of books and ideas. The Reverend let out a long sigh as if he too was aching for his library at that very moment. Shirley gazed out the window again at the shuffling masses in the courtyard. But I have always found the Chinese fascinating. The variations in their language alone warrant our attention. I would love to study it at university and such intriguing customs that I barely fathom even after living here for years. Sadly, though, I never pursued my intellectual interest beyond college. Instead, I developed the skills that were expected of me. Like so many girls, I became a nurse, not that it suited me then or now. Reverend Wells let out an understanding grunt. He leaned in closer as if they now shared a secret understanding. Life flows along, doesn't it, dragging us with it. It carries us down unexpected and often less rewarding streams until we are spit out into the ocean and have no way back. The tide pulls us, and there we are, out in the vast blue. He rocked forward onto his toes, a hopeful glow appearing on his face, his voice barely hiding a rising sense of mirth. Everyone must know it, he continued, that I, of all people, am not meant to be a leader of men, and yet here I am, in charge. That is simply how it is. We must rise to our calling, Mrs. Carson, however how ill-suited we may feel. His eyes glistened and an impish smile appeared. But how fortunate for us that you are a nurse, he exclaimed. I will tell the others. Already today, Doc Sturgis has set up the mission infirmary for typhoid inoculations. With the unsanitary conditions and refuse problems, we need that right away. The Reverend paused and looked at her waiting. It seemed for her to say something rousing as well. When she didn't, he carried on, his eyes still sparkling behind the thick lenses. I suggest we relieve Doc Sergis by setting up another smaller clinic here in your home. What do you say, Mrs. Carson? It would, be for the, it would not be for the worst cases, but for more routine problems that suit your nursing skills. We really must take advantage of your training. Shirley felt distracted by the sight of Leon crossing the hall, a cast iron pot of bloodied water sloshing in her hands. Dao Ming followed close behind, her arms laden with used towels. I'm sorry, Reverend, she said. I must go help the others now. So here, then, a clinic, he asked again. I would offer the parish hall, but it is packed to the gills of the people already, and I think we'd do better to start small. If word gets out that we're opening an actual hospital here, there will be no end to the Chinese. Shirley glanced around again at her crowded home, then out at the overrun courtyard, and then back again to the Reverend, who seemed to be trembling, but perhaps now with nervous excitement. There is no end to the Chinese, Reverend, she said. That is the truth of it. Yes, and they need our help now more than ever. Your caring and talents can make all the difference. He was such a sincere little man, Shirley thought, his expression straining with optimism and conviction. She had lacked both of those qualities for so long, she marveled that he could exhibit them so easily. He was a leader of men after all, she thought. Short and with poor eyesight and more dedicated to learning than to life, Reverend Wells appeared to have taken the plunge required of him. In the little boat of his life, he was heading out into the wide and turbulent ocean he had described. There would be no turning back. Shirley supposed that the dizzying feeling that surrounded her now 
was the tide pulling her out to join him. That's really great. It's a wonderful illustration, actually, of, of it leads right into my next question, although you may not uh-huh. have expected it. Uh, just because, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, you're not writing an academic thesis, obviously, so you're doing right. research as a novelist rather than as a um, yeah. as an academic. But it's yeah. still, you do most novelists, historical novelists at least, do you know ten times as much research as they can possibly include in their work. Um, and that's it, what you read is, is clearly a novel, right? It's, it's very immediate. Yeah. It's very emotional. Yeah. How do you decide what to leave out? And not so much what to keep in, but what do you, how do you decide how to prune all of that out to get to the experience that is the character of the moment? Well, um, that's a great question. And I think that that um, takes practice. <laughs> It takes years of getting it wrong. Um, I wrote a lot of novels before River of Dust that probably aired on the side of having too many of the characters' thoughts, uh, too many sidetracks. Um, the novels that you know now are being published that I've written um, do seem to be more direct, um, and you know where I've sort of filtered out. Um, any uh, side paths that are either a thoughts that the characters are having or action that's not needed. So it's really a question of sort of editing and um, and trying very hard to stay on track uh, with really what matters and what, what is going to move the story forward. Um, it partly has to do with what publishing allows in this day and age, and it also has to do with, you know, how to tell a better story. Um, and so, you know, you want everything that you're you're conveying to move the story forward, to pull the reader in, to um, fit with uh, you know the, the the within the confines of what you're what you're trying to convey. Um, there's so much more that I'd love to say, but it wouldn't make for a better story. Um, and uh, you know, you, you have to just be willing to let go of all of that and and zero in on on really what your story is about. Um, so, but I, again, I think that just takes practice <laughs> and having a good editor. I should say, I have a wonderful editor at Unbridled Books, uh, Greg Michelson, who I learned a lot with um, from on River of Dust. Um, he he uh, took well, actually, I'm, I take that back. He didn't edit River of Dust that heavily, but in fact, earlier drafts of this book of Dreams of Red Phoenix, he did, and I, I can you know continue to learn from him all the time. So that brings me to the title, Dreams of the Red Phoenix, uh-huh. uh, which actually has a personal resonance for me because my next novel in my Russian series is going to be called The Vermilion Bird, which is another uh-huh. name for the phoenix. Um, but it's oh, a wonderfully great. evocative uh-huh. title. Um, and within the context uh-huh. of the novel, it seems to refer to several different things, not all of which we probably want to talk about. But right. what does it mean to you? Um, how does it reflect the heart of the novel to you? Well, um, let's see. I think that, um, well, first just to say what it is, the, the, the Red Phoenix, um, I'll, I'll just read you a, a few sentences from the book that tell what it, you know, what it, what it means. Um, Leon, that is Charles's ama and uh, sort of nursemaid, um, had taught him that the Phoenix Fun Huang was also known as the August Rooster. 
So this is um, uh, contained within it were all birds and other brave creatures too, representing the full range of yin and yang in life. It appeared in auspicious times and brought goodness, virtue, and grace. From high in the Kunlung Shan Mountains nearby in North China where it lived, it would someday swoop down and bring everyone below good luck. Lian had boasted that those in the north were most likely to profit from such auspiciousness, which seemed to Charles a feeble perk given the many hardships of living in the region. Still, when she told him to keep watch for the Chinese phoenix as it circled the sky above the compound, he did. At any moment, the bird might descend, she said, spreading immortality and happiness. Charles looked about him now and longed to see its shadow. Um, so that explains what the the red phoenix is. But but and in the book, it is um, sort of an image of hope and. Um, in fact, that passage conveys, you know, why that's so important, particularly in that setting at that time. It was such a, um, uh, you know, dangerous and desolate and, uh, you know, impossible place to be. And uh, I was about to face even greater hardships there uh, because of the war. And um, and so this is a, a, a one hopeful thing that that uh, they will survive um, and there's a certain amount of optimism that goes with the with the early communists um, and with the nationalists too, uh, you know, that that was trying to offer that as well. And so it's it it, it is about the um, you know rising up of the human spirit over uh, you know through through the worst of of disasters and crises. Um, and the Reverend uh, Caleb Carson, who is a voice in in the book. Um, you know, he gets to reflect on that as well, how, how uh, it's, you know, how even in the face of disaster that, that you know, the phoenix rises up from the ashes. So, um, you know, I think that that is uh, sort of the philosophical bent of the, of the book and is also at the heart of the book. So that's why we chose it as the title. It was very difficult to choose a title for some reason for this book. But then once we finally landed on it, 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 it seemed really right. Yes. Yeah, it's absolutely perfect, actually. But um, So what's next for you? Well, thanks for asking. Um, what's next is actually a book that River of Dust came out of. And it will be the third and final book um, in this uh, what is turning out to be a China trilogy about these Americans in China. And this is a story that um, the it, it, it's a direct follow-up to Dreams of the Red Phoenix in the sense that Charles, the teenage boy um, who we've been discussing, um, it takes place, the next book takes place when Charles is uh, goes back to China with the Marines at the end of World War II and then also when he is a, as a father and as a man, um, it's told from the perspective of his daughter, um, whose name is Maggie Carson. And um, he, Charles, ends up as dean of students at Harvard. And one of the main incidents in the book is Maggie uh, is a student at Harvard and ends up in the student takeover of Harvard in uh, April of 1969. Um, her brother, Charles's son, um, ends up at the fall of Saigon. So what we've got is Americans with this tie to China. Now there's a strong connection to Vietnam. And so it's another opportunity to sort of explore American imperialism through a family story. And, um, and uh, it comes all the way up to the present 
uh, well, up to the year around 2000, I should say, and, um, and Maggie ends up back in China, in Shaanxi province, doing a very particular project there that helps expand her family and her family's legacy. So um, I have finished it. In fact, I've written it any number of times over the years, and I'm looking forward to delivering it to my agent very soon. And uh, we'll see. We'll see. I hope it comes, uh, you know, I hope it comes full circle and, and there'll be a third one, I'm hoping. That's great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. I really, I enjoyed talking to you the last time, and I enjoyed it just as much this time. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this. You do a beautiful job with it, and um, great. Good luck with your own work. I'm very excited to see your next book too. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am CP Leslie, and today I've been talking with Virginia Pye, author of Dreams of the Red Phoenix. You can find out more about her at www. VirginiaPie.com, V-I-R-G-I-N-I-A-P-Y-E as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books and Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at at NewBooksHistFic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com and blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until next month when I will host another conversation about new books in historical fiction.